This is the 121 Community Church Podcast. For more information about 121, visit us at 121cc.com. Love that we get to gather around the, the name of Jesus and to center on the, the power, the beauty, uh, just the wonderful name of Jesus. That's just not a song to us, that is life uh, to us. Uh, he breathes life uh, into us, allows us to flourish in himself, uh, and loves our praise. And so what a gift this morning to be a part of that together. We've been highlighting over the last several weeks, took a couple of weeks uh, break with our guest speaker and then our serve day last week, and we'll talk more about serve day and what happened on it in weeks to come. Uh, And then uh, we've been speaking of our different high schools and what God's doing on those campuses. Part of our vision 2025 uh, is the main idea of it is establishing worship where there is none, Uh, and part of what that means to us is establishing the worship of Jesus Uh, in whatever ways God would allow on different campuses, uh, high school, middle school, elementary school, whatever it might be. And we've been highlighting what God's doing through 121 students uh, on different campuses. And uh, today I'm wearing Byron Nelson's uh, high school uh, t-shirt. We have three students that are there that I'd like to uh, just highlight what God's doing through them. Uh, One is Hannah Penny. Uh, last year, she was involved with her team in a Bible study, and then she actually chose just to highlight a friend of hers uh, at the school that has just recently lost uh, her brother, uh, and what an encouragement she's been in the midst even of that loss uh, through Christian music, and through scripture, uh, different ways, and how this young lady has actually been an encouragement to others, uh, even in spite of the loss of her brother uh, with whom she was close. Uh, and then there is Emma Penny, uh, and Emma is uh, leading a small group of girls on Monday nights in Bible study. One of the things that we've noted over the last several weeks uh, of how many of our students are already leading Bible studies, mentoring other students, or those younger than them, either peers or those younger than them. And I love that because uh, we don't have to wait till we're adults to be teachers and leaders and impact uh, people for the name of Jesus. And so many of our kids uh, are leading out uh, and passing on what God's given them. <clears throat> and then the third one that I would mention is Emma Prasher. Uh, and Emma is unafraid uh, to speak about her faith, to speak about what she understands from the scriptures uh, to those around her. In a recent social media post, Uh, This is what she said. Uh, She explained what she understands from Scripture to be God's view uh, of marriage. Uh, And when she did that, uh, she explained that the ultimate purpose uh, of marriage from God's perspective uh, is that uh, the husband and wife are a picture of Christ in the church. Uh, And then she went on to say it doesn't make logical sense that you would have two churches or two Christs. The scripture talks about in marriage, it's between a man and a woman. It represents Christ and the church. So when we understand the why even of what marriage is, uh, that has a a different kind of impact. And and can you imagine today uh, in a high school environment on social media, uh, the courage uh, to post uh, what God says about Christian marriage? 
Uh, I'm so proud of our, our students and what they're doing. Uh, predictably, she received pushback uh, on what she shared on social media, uh, and she graciously tried to respond to one who was the fiercest uh, until that person then blocked her uh, as a friend. And then she also received uh, a lot of encouragement from others. Uh, and so many were encouraged because they had not understood or heard that before. That that's what marriage is about from a Christian perspective. To be a picture of Christ in the church. It's a beautiful unfolding all through scripture to where Paul says this at the end in Ephesians 5. Uh, that picture. So with our students again, uh, I love that they are uh, living their lives for Christ on their campuses the way God's called them to. Uh, and it's not an easy environment uh, for them uh, to do so. If you're turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 through 5, and I want to uh, just continue in our study of Acts. For those who are newer here, uh, we've been working through uh, just verse by verse the book of Acts. Uh, and the beauty of working through books of the Bible like this is we end up covering things that, that maybe we wouldn't have just chosen uh, during a particular uh, week or a layout of something. We might just choose our favorite things. Uh, and by doing this, we cover uh, the whole counsel of God's Word uh, and what He has to say uh, to us. As you turn into Acts chapter 12, you might already be there, and then we'll also have the Scripture on the screen. Uh, I want to just take a one side note uh, as a church, something that I want to invite you into. Uh, we are led uh, by a small group of men uh, that are elders. The Bible calls them elders. Uh, and that's who gives the basic oversight and spiritual authority to our church. This is God's design from Scripture. Uh, and we are in the process of adding one more person uh, to our elders uh, and would ask that you join us in that. Uh, and this is how I would invite you into it. Uh, if you would look at 1 Timothy 3, uh, in verses 1 through 7, it describes the, the qualifications for an elder. And then Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, also describes the qualifications for an elder. Uh, and then our desire is that our elders are men that are already fully engaged in the life of 121. So these aren't people we're hoping would be one day. Uh, these are ones who are already living it out uh, in the way that God has called us as a church uh, to function. And if you know anyone that would fit those qualifications and aspires to be an elder, uh, if you'd let us know who that might be. Uh, and you could write it on one of the cards in the seat back. You can text us, email us, however you want to get it to us. Uh, but we would love for you to let us know who are men that you see uh, that might qualify for this particular uh, role, and then be praying with and for us uh, as we seek God out on it. It's a critical role. God's been really gracious to us uh, over the 22 years of our church uh, in the leadership that he's provided uh, through the elders, and so we look forward to who he continues to add into that mix. Well, the big theme we've been looking at over the last few weeks in Acts uh, is uh, broken barriers, so the barriers being broken, so the gospel can can move in advance. The reality is when we see Acts and we see it unfold from Acts 1 all the way to where we are in chapter 12, that's actually what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing all kinds of barriers broken. We're seeing uh, the barriers in people's hearts towards Jesus being broken. 
we're seeing different racial, economic, social barriers being broken, and we're seeing person after person uh, responding to the message of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people uh, that hear that Christ was crucified, God raised him from the dead. They ask what they're supposed to do with that, and they, they're told they're supposed to repent, and they do. Uh, and God changes the whole trajectory of their lives in that one moment. And then we see some Samaritans, those who are a mixed race of people that receive the gospel of Jesus, and they come to faith in Christ. And then we see a North African, an Ethiopian eunuch, who comes to be a follower of Jesus. And then, as the story unfolds, we see Saul, who was ravaging the church. He hated the church, the early Christians, and, and now his heart has changed, and he follows Jesus. And, and then we're introduced to Cornelius and his household, and he's a full-on Gentile, a non-Jew, and, uh, and Cornelius comes to Jesus and his household. <clears throat> and then in Antioch, which is up north of Jerusalem, uh, we find a whole mixed group of people uh, in chapter 11 that respond to faith in Christ. What we're simply seeing the advance of the message of Jesus. It's advancing geographically, and then it's breaking all kinds of barriers uh, in the people uh, and ones who wouldn't have thought that it was for them. Uh, and yet it is in God's economy and in the bigness of who He is. In chapter 12... I want us to look at this big idea, and what I try to do each week when we teach is to look at what, what's the main theme, what, what's the big idea running through this particular passage of Scripture, and then try to have a title for the message that is that main idea, so we have something just to hang our hat on, and there would be a number of ways we might think about this. The way it became clear to me is that we can be unhindered by setbacks. And that's how I'd like us to think about this part of Scripture today, be unhindered by setbacks. Now, all of us have faced setbacks at different times. We might be in the middle of something right now. Uh, but what I want you to know today from Scripture is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it does not have to and does not get hindered by what we see as setbacks. They, they actually become ways that God advances what He's doing. And so I think we can all think about that, in particularly in the context uh, of Acts chapter 12, of how God wants to, to work through those uh, particular setbacks. We'll begin in verses 1 through 4, and I want us to talk about just hard persecution. Uh, and I use that word on purpose, it, it'll make sense when we unfold these four verses. And then I want to look today at the church's response to this persecution in, in verse 5. I intended to go through verse 17 today. Uh, and as I was studying and writing uh, the sermon, uh, when I got to verse 5, I was already seven pages in uh, on my notes, and six is about a good stopping point uh, for me to be somewhat reasonable uh, in time. So uh, God's mercy on you uh, that I'm going to stop at verse 5. And we'll make this two parts. So next week, we'll look at the second half uh, of this story. But I think it breaks nicely uh, at verse 5. Uh, and I want us to think about first that hard persecution. Uh, and, and the way I want to move through this, I want to look at what's happening here in the book of Acts. We, we want to observe and take a good look at what the Scripture's saying. 
And then we want to launch into what's happening where we are today uh, so that we can see uh, how God is speaking into the way we need to respond uh, in our cultural moment uh, in the, the part of the world in which we live. Uh, but let's begin looking at how it, it anchors us into what was happening then. Verse 1, now about that time Herod the king <coughs> laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. I'm going to start with Herod, and depending on how much you read your Bible or don't read your Bible, I would, I would cheer you on to read it as much as you possibly can, uh, but if, if you've read it somewhat frequently, you run into the name Herod multiple times, and it can be confusing because it's different Herods that we run into, and I, and I want to back up a little bit so we can understand who this Herod is. And the lineage he comes from. It's, it's a pretty brutal uh, family line uh, at this point. But if you're familiar with the story around Christmas, uh, the birth of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced uh, to Herod the Great. And he's the one reigning over the area where Jesus would be born. When Herod heard that the Messiah was going to be born, he intercepted the Magi, the wise men who were coming uh, to bring their gifts to this newborn baby. And Herod, when he caught wind of it, and he, he got the Magi off to the side, and he said, hey, when you find this baby, if you'll come back and tell me where he is, because I want to go worship him. Well, they were warned that Herod was being deceptive in what he said, uh, and the Magi, after they found Jesus, they worshipped him, and they went back a different route. That's usually where we stop around Christmas time, because the rest of the story doesn't play well to the whole family narrative in Matthew chapter 2. Herod, infuriated by what had just happened to him, ordered that every male child under two years old in Bethlehem be slaughtered. And he carried out that edict. He's a vicious man. Not only did he do that, but we know uh, that he also had his son, Aristobulus, murdered as well. Because he was a threat to his throne. Herod the king, in chapter 12, verse 1, is the grandson of Herod the Great in Matthew 2. So Aristobulus, his dad, was murdered by his grandfather. That's who this Herod is. When this Herod was a child and his father was murdered, they sent him off to Rome so that his grandfather would not be able to kill him. He had several childhood friends that would prove to be helpful to him later on. And we know mostly today that it's not as much what you know as it is who you know. And that worked out very well for this Herod in chapter 12 of who he knew later on in life. Herod the Great would fall away. Tiberius would become an emperor at some point, and after Tiberius died, then Caligula became the emperor. 
That was good news for this Herod, because Caligula was his childhood friend. And Caligula put Herod in charge of the area of Galilee and Perea. So a small part of Israel, now Herod is over it. Caligula dies, then Claudius becomes the emperor. Claudius was also a childhood friend. And he expanded the territory for Herod to rule over. So now he had Judea and Perea, or, or Judea and Samaria, which are larger portions of Israel. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 12, with this Herod who's in charge of this particular region. His mother also had Jewish blood. So he did things to appease the Jews, as well as Rome and what he needed to do to rule well on their behalf in this particular area. That's Herod. He lays hands on some who belong to the church. It's important that we know who the church is. The church is not a building. The word for church is called out ones. It's the word ecclesia in the Greek, and it means called out ones. It's those who have actually responded to the message of Jesus and are following Jesus. Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they're actually a part of the church. The only ones who are a part of the church are the ones who have believed Jesus and are trusting and yielding and following Jesus. That's who the church is. That's who he's laying hands on and mistreating are those who are a part of the church, those who have said yes to Jesus. And then he gives a specific example in chapter 12 that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So we're talking about real hard persecution here. Not only does he mistreating, but now he's murdering one of the disciples, the disciple James. Now, if we go back into the Gospels and say, all right, who is James? There were two brothers that were part of the 12 of Jesus' original disciples, James and John. Their dad's name was Zebedee, and they were called the Sons of Thunder. These are some fiery young guys uh, that Jesus called out to be his followers. Uh, these were the same guys that argued over who would be the greatest in heaven. It's when Jesus explained to them it would be the one who's the servant in the least that will be the greatest. This is who James is. James, the brother of John, following Jesus, speaking Jesus' name. Simply for following Jesus and talking about Jesus. He gets put to death by the sword. That's hard and violent persecution. I don't know about you, but when I read things like that, it makes me ask a question. Why James, in our human look, why does James meet an early death by the sword from the political authorities and John lives a long life, his brother, and is the author of one of our Gospels and of the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and of Revelation at the end of our scriptures. Why that path for John and this path, this path for James? Why is it today when I look across the world and read stories about people who are being persecuted in really violent ways, why them and why not us? 
And I don't have a good answer to the question in terms of the whys for different people, except for this. The one thing I know for certain is that God is sovereign, meaning he's over everything. And he works everything for his good and for his glory. And I don't have to understand why something happens to one person or why something happens to me and why it doesn't happen to them. At the end of John, Jesus had this encounter with two of his disciples. One of them was figuring out what was about to happen with him. And he said, well, what about him? I want to know what's going to happen to him. And Jesus said, don't worry about him. This is what I have for you. See, God has a particular path marked for each of us. I don't know why different paths are marked, but I know they are. And I know that God is sovereign and he'll work everything for his good. And the best place that you and I can be is right in the middle of God's will. Submitted and yielded to him. Then whatever comes, we're good. Because we're in the middle of his will. And we're actually in the most free place, even if it's the hardest place, we're in the middle of God's will. That's where these early followers of Jesus were. That's why they could lay their lives down for the sake of Jesus. They were good. Because they were good in who they were in Jesus. James was good. John was good. Good in who they were in Christ. Now we get a little bit into the motivation of Herod in verse 3. When he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So he saw that it pleased the Jews. Herod's a people pleaser. He, he was doing what he could to ingratiate himself to the people that he was overseeing. And here he is. He's, he's, a, he's a pleaser. And look what happens. He says, oh, wow. Look at all the approval I just received by having James killed. I think I'll go after Peter now, who's actually the leader of this movement. And I'm going to arrest him. And I can't imagine the accolades I'm about to get from all the people when I do that. I can be pretty hard on Herod as a people pleaser until I step back and look in my own heart and realize how easily it is that I want your approval. And I want to please you. And I want to hear your accolades for me. It's easy to look at the named person and notice their motivations, what they're about. But we have to be willing to step back and say, do I have the same tendencies? Do I have the same sin bent that Herod does? And candidly, that's frightening to me because I don't want to be like that. If I can go to Proverbs 29, 25, it says the fear of man ensnares us. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. 
fear of man is a way to say, I'm, I want your approval. I'm afraid of you, and I want your approval. So I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get your approval. Parents may do that to try to get the approval of their children. Children will do that to get the approval of their parents when they find a coach or a, uh, a boss or whatever. And we are willing to do things just because we want them to be pleased with us. That people-pleasing, it's a tough road. And it leads to moments like this. It gets crowds riled up and doing things people might not normally do. So we see his motivation. He's, he's, he likes that they're liking him, so I'm going to give them more. So Peter gets arrested. This isn't this, uh, a new rodeo for Peter. In Acts chapter 4, he was preaching Jesus. He gets arrested. In Acts chapter 5, he's talking about Jesus. He gets arrested. This is the third time in the book of Acts we see Peter getting arrested for speaking the name of Jesus. Now, we have to appreciate Peter. He's a man of integrity. In Acts chapter 4, when he got put in prison, they got him out. And they said, the leadership that got him out, they said, look, you have to quit speaking about Jesus. And he said, I'm not going to do it. He said, I can't stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. So he, he was honest. They didn't know what to do with him. But he wasn't going to stop speaking about Jesus. He was not worried about their approval. He had a fear of God. And he was interested in God's approval. And he was not going to be silenced by others. What was his message? His message is the gospel. He said to the ones in Acts 4, he said, By God's predetermined plan, you put this man to death. But God raised him from the dead. That's the message again and again. He's crucified, but God raised him. What do we do with it? Believe it. Believe it. It's for speaking of this kind of truth about Jesus that he was arrested. It's speaking about Jesus that James had the sword uh, and he was killed. And it is uh, the same reason that Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was stoned because he spoke about Jesus. He did this during the Passover time. Unleavened bread. It's a seven-day feast that followed the Passover. The Passover was done as an annual memorial of God rescuing the people from Egyptian slavery. And, uh, and then Jesus changed the whole meaning of it. Say, hey, the Passover is now more of a picture of me. And it's Christ who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he rescues us from a sinful heart. For that message, that the persecution has come. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. 
And, and the thought would be here when he brought him out that probably the same fate would be his that was James and Stephen's. Four squads of soldiers. So there have been four soldiers uh, that, that were with him in three-hour shifts during the night. That, that's the way the Romans uh, handled their uh, prisoners. Uh, and we'll see more detail of that uh, a week from now. So this is what's happening then. It's hard. It's violent. Persecution. So let's, let's launch into now. And what's happening now that parallels what was happening then? And all over the world today, there are people that are being killed, beaten, imprisoned. There are people that are not able to get good jobs because they are Christians. People lose their jobs for being Christians. They lose their families when they become followers of Jesus. All over the world today, people are suffering for simply being a follower of Jesus. There's two places that I read routinely that I would encourage you, if you don't already, to think about our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, is one of those. Uh, each issue, they take a, a people group and talk about what God's doing in that group. Most recent one was on Uzbekistan. And then World Magazine. It's the equivalent to like a Time Magazine, but from a Christian worldview. They do a great job. But they'll highlight things that are going on different parts. The world does all kinds of things, including persecuted Christians. Voice of the Martyrs are just straight up talking about persecuted Christians. But I, I took a couple of stories from, from those, things, those magazines I've read just to give you an idea of what's going on right now today across the world that's similar uh, to what we're just reading in Acts chapter 12. Uh, and I chose uh, places where, uh, or at least one place where we have a team right now. So we have a team of five from our church that are in India. Uh, and if you'll continue to pray for them, uh, they've had the opportunity to train uh, 200 pastors uh, in, in one gathering. Uh, they've been with uh, Afghan refugees, 100 families of Afghan refugees. Uh, they've been with uh, orphanages with children and working with them. Uh, so they're doing great work in trying to identify ways we continue to partner in that region of the world. But I'm thinking about them and praying for our team that's over there right now. And I'm reading... Uh, about the Indian state of Karnataka uh, that just passed a bill discouraging religious conversions. Uh, and under their new law, uh, if someone plans to convert and change their faith, they have to inform the district magistrate 30 days in advance or they risk up to a three-year imprisonment. So if, if you're going to follow a different faith, you register and then 30 days later, you can do it. Or you risk a three-year imprisonment. People who attempt to convert someone. So if I were to speak of Jesus, like Peter, James, these we're speaking of. If I were to come in one of these states in India, there's ten states that have these anti-conversion laws. 
If I were to go into one of those states right now and try to talk to you about Jesus, then I might face up to a 10-year prison sentence for just simply trying to share that faith with you. That would be seen as coercion. In Uzbekistan, that Voice of the Martyrs article, they describe a couple. A young lady uh, was a believer, follower in Jesus. She started dating a guy who was not a follower of Jesus. She prayed two and a half years, and he finally became a follower of Christ. They married, and then God called them. Uh, to start a church uh, in a really hard part uh, of the world in Uzbekistan. Uh, after, for a while it went well. Now they face continual police raids. Uh, the husband's been in prison for a period of time. But the story of, that, of this family, they got three kids. And the, the one story that struck me the most in reading that article was about their son who was sixth grade at the time. And they had told their children not to talk about Jesus with anybody at their schools. They wanted them to stay quiet because they were fearful of what would happen to them. But Samuel, their sixth grader, he couldn't help himself. And so he talked to his sixth grade friends about Jesus. And one of them trusted Christ. That didn't go so well with the family the school was a bit lenient this time because he was one of their top students. There is still something about having credibility. And then seven more of his friends trusted Jesus. At this point, the police started harassing the sixth grade boy. The dad was seeking God out, praying, saying, what do I say to my son? And as he sought God out, he said what was so clear to him is God said, tell him I'm training him. And that afternoon, his son got in the car and said, Dad, I don't know what's going on with all this. And he said, this is what God's saying. He, he's training you. Today he's in university and still sharing gospel with his friends. Who knows what God has in store for him. Training the sixth grader. The sixth grader who's seen his dad in jail because he follows Jesus. I find so many of the stories I read is pretty horrendous of what happens. And then I find myself incredibly encouraged by people who refuse to waver. And refuse to shrink back, no matter what the cost. That's the kind of faith we're called into. I actually think at the end of the day, that's actually the kind of faith that's attractive to someone. So what about today? What about here? You say, Ross, that's great. That's, that's India, that's Uzbekistan. I, I don't even know where that country is. What about right here? Well, somebody sent me a book the other day called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And I think several of you probably listened to podcasts and so forth by him. 
But I started the book, and it's, it's really good. But one of the things he talks a lot about is the devil. And in our culture, we, we too easily dismiss the devil. It's either a joke. We don't think he's really real. I don't think he's really at work. But I think he does a great serious treatment of the devil. And he, of a number of things he says, one thing that is a highlight for me that makes sense. He said, we think about the devil and we think about these massive kind of things going on. He said, think Lord of the Rings and big battles. That's, that's where we think the devil might really be involved. But Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And the means by which the devil works primarily is through lies. And the best way to lie is to surround it with 95% truth. And I think it would be fair to say that we are surrounded in our cultural moment by all kinds of lies. That Satan has just nicely slid in. And we so easily believe them. But he goes on to note that what's happened for us in the West, there's been three tectonic shifts. I think this is a great way to say it. We're, we're living in them. We know they're happening if we're paying attention to what's going on. And here's what he says they are. As Christians, we've moved from being the majority to the minority. On paper and in stats, there's still percentage-wise more people that say they're Christian in the U.S. than not. But cognitively and actually living out the faith, there are far fewer that are followers of Jesus today. We've shifted from the majority to the minority. George Barna in one survey says that young adults today comprise of uh, 10% are resilient disciples. That's one shift. A second shift he talks about is we've moved from a place of honor to a place of shame. For who we are as followers of Jesus and what we believe about Jesus, and if we live out our beliefs in Jesus, it's no longer a place of honor, it's a place of shame. What Emma posted about marriage now is more a place of shame than it is a place of honor to think of marriage that way. I'll just give you one example. As Christians, that's a shift. And then we've shifted from widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. Tolerance, by the way, is defined differently today. What it meant in its original state is, I can put up with what you believe. Tolerance today is, you can't even believe that. I I'm not going to let you even believe it. Or you're wrong. Widespread tolerance to a rising hostility today. People would say what we believe and what we say is dangerous. George Barna would say that our cultural moment is a digital Babylon. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Babylon took Judah, the 
bottom half of Israel captive. And for 70 years, they were exiled from their land and lived in Babylon. He says, what we're in today, we are exiles as followers of Jesus in a digital Babylon. I think that's a good, good description. So where are we today? There are people being persecuted in our culture. We've gone silent. How many, if I just, don't raise your hand, but if I were just to say, how many people think twice today as a follower of Jesus before you would say out loud in your workplace to someone in another cubicle or in the hallway, you know what, I believe the way God designed marriage is between a man and a woman. Is there pause before I would even say it? for fear of what that's going to create. It's tough being in exile to figure out how to live in a digital Babylon. We're in a day where persecution will continue to amp up unless God just does a miracle in the hearts of people across our land. And I pray that because he's able. And he's doing all kinds of things across our nation as well. But what's our response to this? Verse 5 is our response. In the middle of the story, it's fervent prayer. The, the way we respond to hard persecution in our moment across the world today is with fervent prayer. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. There was fervent prayer that was being made. This isn't, how do I figure something out and I add on prayer. This isn't, I throw out a statement to God, help Peter, and then I move on and spend hours trying to figure out, how are we going to get him out of prison? It's not, how do I add something? It is prayer, fervent prayer. The word fervent means to stretch or to, uh, to, to reach out, to agonize, to strain. It's fervent praying. It's getting in there with God, really leaning into God and really spending time praying. So the church, on behalf of Peter, they gathered and they were praying. That's what they were doing. All of us today, so we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ across the pond they say, okay, all, all the way across, why should I have an interest in them? I don't know them. I don't know, who, I don't know who you're talking about. Well, do you have relatives that live in another part of the country that you actually care about? See, we're family. There's distant relatives. There's people we don't know, but they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. And so we care about people in other parts of the world that are part of our family. And so we fervently pray for those who are being persecuted all over the world. This is the same word that Jesus, uh, that, that Luke uses of Jesus in Luke twenty-two forty-four. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. In agony, he was praying very fervently. It's the same word in Acts 12.5, that, that he's praying fervently. It's fervent praying. It's with agony and sweat, and it's, it's getting in there. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, 
uh, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. How is he making sure that people are standing in the will of God? He's praying fervently for them. He's agonizing. He's straining. He's stretching. Uh, years ago, I was a youth minister, and I was invited to speak to an FCA at a high school, and, and I went to speak, and I love this verse of Scripture uh, about Epaphras, and the word uh, always laboring there is the idea of wrestling. And I thought, oh, that would be cool. I'm talking to students, and, and I'll grab one of the students and just wrestle him real quick and just give a visual of, of what this looks like. And so I did, and the floor was really hard. It was the second floor. I don't know what they make those things out of in schools, but it was hard. And we're wrestling, and he slams me down on my head, and I'm thinking, oh, how am I even going to finish this, talking to him about his means? But, but that's what it means. It's, it's getting in there and wrestling, laboring. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. I pray, and it feels like it hits the ceiling. I pray, and God doesn't answer the prayer. And, and I just I stay there a little bit, and then I'll leave. It's work. It's a labor. It's wrestling. That's work. You got to work hard at it. If you're going to be a good wrestler, you're going to win. That's hard work. It's a battle. We're not in a, as some say, we're not in a domestic war. We're in a battle. And when we pray, we're getting in there and we're battling. And we build into our rhythm of life the space to stay and to battle in prayer. That's where I'm battling for my children. That's where I'm battling for my parents, where I'm battling for my friends, where I'm battling for my church. It's not I'm going to go see all the people I can possibly see and figure this out and throw a prayer out there. Fervent prayer. Jehoshaphat understood it. In 2 Chronicles 20, he was a king at the time, and it was a Lord of the Rings looking battle coming at him. And he was afraid. You know, it's okay to be afraid sometimes. What do we do with that when we are? You know what Jehoshaphat did? He called everybody together and said, we're praying. We're going to fast and we're going to pray. And we're going to seek God out. Because I, for the life of me, can't figure out how we'll beat this enemy. And they prayed. And in 2 Chronicles 20, it's a prayer we could copy and pray. But he calls out to God and he says, God, you're the, you're the one who has the power. You're the ruler. You're the almighty. You've done it before. We've seen you do it before. Will you do it again? We can't see our way out of this. And then a man named Jehatzil stood up. God spoke through him and said, this is what God's saying today. The battle's not yours. Battles the Lord's. And they fell down and worshiped. They actually believed it. 
They prayed, fasted, and they actually believed the response. This isn't our battle. This is God's battle. And then God gave them instructions. And he put the singers out front of the army. And on that next day, they just started praising and thanking God. Maybe like we were doing earlier on. And they just kept doing it. They kept talking about God's loving kindness, who he is, and praising him. In the meantime, while they're doing that, God set up an ambush and took care of the enemy. It's his battle. He did it the way he wanted to do it. And then the people of Israel, they just went and collected all the spoils of war. They didn't do anything. They actually did. They prayed. They fasted. They praised. They thanked. Thank God. And recognize this is his battle. That's no different than today. Whatever battle you're in, whatever setback we're facing, it's his battle. And we go to him and fervently pray and watch what he does. We may not like the answer But I think this story is helpful. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, A Day in the Life of Denisovich, I don't know if I say any of those names right, but he's enduring a Soviet prison camp, and Denisovich was praying, and a prisoner ridiculed him for praying. He said, prayers won't help you get out any faster. Denisovich opened his eyes, and he answered, I do not pray to get out of prison. I pray that I'll do the will of God. It's what we're praying. We'll be right in the middle of the will of God. And then we trust God to take care of that battle in us. All right, thank you for our time and uh, this small part and strength of your word. And God, I thank you today that we don't have to be afraid of the Herods who have political power in the world, nor do we have to be afraid of those who are people pleasers and do things that hurt others uh, to get the approval of some. Uh, God, we want to be like James and Peter and this moment in chapter 12 and with a trust in you trust your will a contentment and then God we, we want to be like the church that fervently prayed for those who were being harassed so God will you help us all to be fervent prayers in our homes in our marriages with our friends in our life groups as a church. Lord, I pray you'll teach us. Help us to find people we know that pray if we're not quite sure what to do. But God, I pray 
We'll just know what it is to trust you and trust your spirit to teach us even. But let us be a body of people who fervently pray. And I thank you, God, that you'll continue to move through setbacks and that the gospel will move and advance in an unhindered way and move through those setbacks. And so we're grateful today for all the pictures and examples you give us of that. And I pray you'll give us a deep, deep trust today in you, in your sovereignty, and in your goodness. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's be quiet before the Lord, and uh, I like to have this space just, just for a brief moment to see if God's saying anything specifically to you, uh, and then uh, for ways that you respond back to Him uh, in the ways that He wants you to be obedient today. So let, let's just have a moment of quiet uh, before Him and contemplate what we've heard this morning. You've been listening to the 121 Community Church Podcast. For more information about 121, visit us at 121cc.com.